Hello, this is Dr. S. Mucker. Welcome to today's session on the 1990s. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about economy and society during the 1990s. We're going to wrap up the political stuff in the 90s, including Clinton's impeachment next class. So today we're going to be focusing mostly on changes to the economy brought on by computers and the internet. And we're also going to talk about the phenomenon of immigration and talk a little bit more about the experience experiences of different rising minority groups in the United States during the 1990s. So let's dig in. The economy in the 1990s was among the most profitable it had been in decades. So the United States is definitely starting to bounce back from the 1970s slump that we talked about earlier in this coverage. And there was a period of unprecedented growth between 1991 and 2000. Unemployment in the year 2000 stood at 4%, the lowest it had been since the 1960s. And in fact, the economy was doing so well that while Bill Clinton was president for most of the 90s, he was not only able to balance the federal budget, but actually end up having a budget surplus, which is especially impressive remembering we started off the decade with a deficit, a federal deficit from Reagan's time in office. So what's driving all of this economic growth? A lot of it has to do with the computer revolution. The idea of a computer or really software for a computer first comes about in the 1800s. Ada Lovelace, a mathematician first proposed kind of the first software, the first code, but really the first physical computer is not built until World War II. And then you have people like Alan Turing, British scientist, working on computers. And initially, computers are mostly meant to solve complex mathematical equations. So during World War II, the first computers are actually built in an attempt to try to detect patterns and break codes of the Axis powers by the Allies. Computers continue to be driven mostly by doing this kind of math work until the invention of the microchip. Computers up until the mid to late 70s were very large because the microchip had not been invented yet. Computer that had the processing power and the capacity of, say, your modern iPhone would take up a very large room. The microchip, however, comes out of the American Space Program research, allows computers to go from taking up an entire room to fitting in the palm of your hand. So this takes a lot of the hardware of computers and shrinks it. So that way computers become much more size efficient. And early computers, especially after the invention of the microchip, we start to see computers used more in consumer products and applications. But really where the computer takes off is in the 1980s, because the microchip now means that we can have computers small enough that you can actually market computers to consumers. So computers first begin to be used in different job fields at the office, but increasingly in the 80s, we're going to see with the launch of Apple's Macintosh introduced in 1984, computers coming into American homes as well. In fact, by the year 2000, half of all American households will have a personal computer. Today, that number is far higher. Computers, much like television, start to reshape American work and leisure habits. And Apple, as I mentioned, enters the ring by marketing the first computer, the Macintosh, the first personal computer in 1984. If you go on YouTube, you can find the legendary ad for the Macintosh, which references George Orwell's novel, 1984, which imagined a dystopian 
totalitarian future. And the Macintosh in that commercial is positioned as a convention breaker, a way to change the future for the better. I highly recommend you find it. All you need to do is search Macintosh 1984 on YouTube and you'll find that ad. While Macintosh gets their foot in the door in terms of marketing personal computers, which now become known as PCs, Microsoft rapidly becomes the dominant operating system because of bulk sales to offices and business applications. Apple and Microsoft become the two dominant computer companies in the 1980s and 1990s and still very dominant in the industry today. And computer companies contribute to a tech boom in places like Silicon Valley, Seattle, Austin, and Manhattan in New York City. What's really going to boost the potential for computers in everyone's home is the internet. Now the internet has its origins as a military communications network, but with the expansion of the personal computer, the internet then moves from this military application that enables instantaneous communication across vast distances to now a civilian application connecting your personal computer at home with other people worldwide on computers as well. The internet changes the pace of communication and revolutionizes the way we view the world. And information becomes more democratized. So in other words, anybody can access information on the internet, provided you don't live in a state with heavy censorship, but also anybody can put information on the internet, right? So you could create your own website, you could have a blog, you could have a YouTube channel, right? And put out information and ideas to share with other people across the world. You're no longer limited just to people within your own community. Our communication becomes much faster. It becomes easier to connect to people with different ideas or maybe the same ideas who are geographically spread out. If you went back in time to World War II when the first computers are being built by the Allies to crack Nazi secret codes and you told them that one day their computers would be as small as to be able to be held in a hand and that we use the power of that to watch cat videos all day, I think they would probably think you were nuts. The 1990s economy is largely driven by two things. Obviously, the computer and internet, but also by the phenomenon of globalization. So what we mean by globalization is the idea that instead of having separate economies for each nation state, that we are increasingly moving towards one integrated, truly global economy that is definitely involved in information with a computer and the internet, but we also see that increasingly in products as well, that nationwide boundary lines increasingly are more fluid when it comes to trade. And we can see that in the U.S. with NAFTA. So NAFTA and the North American Free Trade Association is an alliance between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, which was formed in 1993. Initially, NAFTA was supported by George H.W. Bush, but it's also supported once Clinton takes over office in early 1993 and Clinton urges Congress to approve the NAFTA treaty. NAFTA took a page from the playbook of the European Union, which had existed in some form since the 1950s and basically made it easier to trade across borders 
of the member nations. So the idea with NAFTA would be that it would be far easier to trade goods across the borders of United States, Canada, and Mexico. However, NAFTA had some unintended consequences, particularly for manufacturing in the border region in which I live, El Paso, but it also has never really functioned as well as the European Union and talks to expand NAFTA to include other nations in Central America and have never really gone anywhere either. What NAFTA did was it pushed some American companies to shift manufacturing into Mexico, where wages were lower and environmental regulations were less strict so they could save money compared to locating their factories in the United States. And indeed, that did happen quite rapidly. This, as I mentioned, does create more economic problems for the United States because, again, manufacturing, which has already been rapidly losing market share and losing workers, is increasingly more Americans are losing their jobs in the manufacturing sector because of NAFTA. The stock market in the 1990s looks very similar to the one in, in the the 1920s, which had set off some alarm bells in your head. Americans are investing in the stock market at levels unprecedented since the 1920s, especially in internet-based companies, or what we call dot-coms. People are investing in these new internet-based companies, like, for example, Amazon, which in the 1990s gets its start selling books out of Seattle. By 2000, the majority of Americans had some investment in the stock market, primarily through retirement accounts but there are also some Americans who are directly trading in hopes to make a profit in the stock market. The NASDAQ, which is the area of the stock exchange primarily devoted to tech companies, rose by 500% between 1998 and 1999 alone on the enthusiasm for these new internet-based companies. However, most of these internet companies were overvalued as very few of them were profitable during the late 1990s. It took a while for companies even like Amazon, which is huge today, to turn a profit. The stock market bubble will burst on April 14th, 2000, dropping stocks by the biggest margin in a single day in its history. Stock prices decline for the next three years straight, severely damaging many Americans' investments and retirement funds, which is why a lot of the older wave of the baby boom generation has been putting off retirement as long as possible, partly due to this first economic hit from the stock market bubble bursting in 2000. So the American economy then goes into a full-blown recession in the year 2001. Part of what's also driving this bubble bursting is in 1999, part of the Glass-Steagall Act, which had passed during the Great Depression, was repealed. So the part of the Glass-Steagall Act that was removed was the requirement that commercial and investment banks be kept separate. Now, originally that rule was put in place during the New Deal to protect consumer bank accounts from being used improperly by banks for investment and trying to protect consumer accounts from higher risk of investment banks. Now, however, these are intertwined again. This will lead to shady and risky investment practices in the stock market by banks who knew that the part of the Glass-Steagall Act that still was in place would guarantee consumer account money and banks had essentially become too big to fail. That if the stock market crashed as it did, that the government would be forced to bail out these banks to save 
everyday American accounts. Many of these risky investments were not only in stock market, but also in mortgages, and that will lead to another collapse in the housing market in 2007, which George W. Bush and Barack Obama end up having to spend billions of dollars to bail out. In addition to this overly optimistic and risky investment practices, we also do have some corporate corruption going on. As many industries had been deregulated during the late 70s, the 80s, the early 90s, and that left them vulnerable to misconduct due to lack of oversight. Many companies in the late 90s started to make money by cooking the books. So they would portray their finances as positive when in reality they had a lot of debts. So basically accounting firms and law firms are helping these businesses misrepresent their actual finances. These shady practices in the 1990s end up coming to light after the 2000 crash, leading to many prosecutions of corrupt executives and repayments to consumers by companies who had fleeced them. And the biggest example of this corporate corruption was Enron. Enron was based in Houston, and it was an energy company, but it didn't produce energy. Enron basically bought and sold electricity. And so because it didn't actually produce the electricity, it was not technically a utility company and could not be regulated in the way that a normal utility company was. Enron reported billions of dollars in profits that were actually billions of dollars in losses. And when this came out after the 2000 crash, Enron executives were arrested and convicted of fraud. Now, what does this mean for the average American? The 1990s did start to benefit Americans across all social classes. Remember, we talked about the 1980s being a time of great prosperity for the upper class, but not so much for the classes below them. But by the time we get to the 1990s, for the first time, real wages or the purchasing power of the money you earn actually begin to rise for all social classes. And this includes the working class who largely had seen their real wage or their purchasing power decline throughout the 1980s. However, that rise is not even. When we look at different social classes, the lowest skilled workers saw the slowest gains when it came to buying power. And when you adjust for inflation, the lowest skilled workers actually ended up barely having a different purchasing power with their money earned than their counterparts in the early 1970s. So in other words, the working class had recovered from the 70s crash, but they weren't exceeding the early 1970s pre-crash yet. Long-term unemployment declined by more than 50% as the economy was doing well. And when we average out the late 1970s to the late 1990s, the lower middle class actually declined on average while the upper class rose. So even though Americans were starting to do better than they had in the 1980s, they're still not doing as well as they had been doing in the early 70s. So the average person in the lower class saw a 12% drop in income between the 1970s and the 1990s. The middle class only a 3% drop, so effectively they remain the same. The upper class, however, saw a 38% 
increase in their income between the 1970s and the 1990s. And in the 1990s, the richest living American was Bill Gates, who owned as much wealth as the bottom 40% of all Americans combined. Why is this? Why is it that the wealthier are making so many gains in employment, but the lower and middle class are either staying steady or declining a bit? Part of this is a shift in the nature of our economy. As we mentioned, manufacturing jobs are increasingly vanishing. And so people are now moving towards a service, information, and finance-driven economy. By the year 2000, the financial sector will account for 40% of the American economy. But even within the service and information industry, some of those jobs are being sourced overseas to take advantage of cheaper labor, which will lower prices on some goods and services, but also have a negative impact on American workers by making those jobs less available to them. The biggest employer of Americans in the year 2000 is Walmart. General Electric, or GE, had been the biggest employer of Americans for a long time, but in 2000, Walmart leapfrogs them. And Walmart in the year 2000 has 1.6 million workers. Now, a lot of these workers are not earning much more than minimum wage. And Walmart, still to this day as of recording in spring 2020, forbids uh, workers from unionizing. So because of the growth of employers like Walmart, who are employing a big chunk of Americans, and again, not paying a super great rate, by 2000, half of Americans are going to be working for less than $14 an hour. This is driven by a rise in part-time employment, which also contributed to a growing number of Americans not covered by insurance because of the tie between insurance coverage and full-time employment, and it's also driven by a decline in unions among those lower-wage workers. The United States is going to see another big change in the 1990s, not just from the economy finally recovering, but also due to immigration. The biggest period of immigration in American history is not actually 1890 to, say, 1920, which is when we tend to think of American immigration, right, Ellis Island in the popular imagination, but actually more immigrants come to the United States between 1965 and 2010. During that time period, 38 million people immigrate to the United States. In comparison, between 1880 and 1924, only 27 million came to the United States. So by the year 2010, in that year's census, 40 million Americans put down on the census that they had been born outside of the United States. Part of this growth in immigration post-1965 was as a result of immigration reform that passed during Johnson's time in office, the heart Seller Act, which removed quotas for all places but Latin America, where they added quotas where there hadn't been before, and also changed the system to privilege family immigration, right, to reunite families who already had loved ones in the United States, and also to prioritize immigrants with higher skilled jobs or higher job skills. We can see that when we look at this group of immigrants in comparison with the older generation, the older big wave of immigrants at the dawn of the 20th century. We have new types of ethnicities, new nationalities immigrating to the United States, and so they form their own ethnic communities. We see, unlike in previous immigration movements, we do see some immigrants going directly to suburbs, whereas before many immigrants went to urban areas, especially in the East Coast and the West. Now we're seeing immigrants to the United States spread out across the United States, and in some cases revitalizing older neighborhoods and transforming demographics in the areas that they settle. 
settle. Some immigrants also do settle in the Midwest, which had been starting to see population loss after World War I through World War II, adding more diversity to local populations. And when we look at the impact of globalization on immigrants, we can see that the Cold War is driving a lot of these immigrants. We're seeing refugee populations, people fleeing communist states. We also see people coming to the United States for job opportunities, again, driven by a more integrated global economy. Skilled workers might not have the same kinds of job opportunities as before where they came from. So they came to the United States, like a lot of immigrants have historically, looking for better job opportunities. And on average, immigrants coming in during this more recent time period have better education and better job skills than immigrants who came to the United States in earlier centuries. In 2000, 40% of immigrants in the United States already had a college degree before they came to the United States. There are also, during this time period, more women coming than men, partly explained by the fact that the manufacturing economy, which was declining, had traditionally attracted male immigrants to work, more manual jobs. So that's kind of upending this reason why traditionally immigration had skewed more heavily male. These new immigrants coming to the United States are going to prevent provide much more racial, ethnic, and religious diversity in the United States. And we're going to see a spike in what we call multiculturalism. We've talked earlier in class, if you're one of my students, about how there was this debate between Americanization and cultural pluralism in the 1920s. So Americanization is this idea that all immigrants, when they come to the United States, have to completely assimilate to mainstream American culture and give up their traditions and their values and everything else that kind of makes them more distinct. Whereas cultural pluralism was, yes, we should assimilate to some American ideas, right? Speak English, you know, participate in voting, politics, but also still retain and celebrate our unique cultural heritage. So what we're going to see in the United States in the 1990s is a move towards that idea of cultural pluralism, this embrace of these multiple diverse identities. So if you look at a chart charting the pattern of immigration between the 1960s and the 1990s, you're going to see a very different pattern of immigration than you do during earlier time periods in American history. 50% of these immigrants between 1965 and 2000 are coming from Latin America or the Caribbean. In earlier waves of immigration, much of the immigration had been driven by Europe. But Europe at this point in time during the same time period, 1960s to the 1990s, only represents about 10% of all immigrants. One of the fastest growing areas is immigration from Asia. About 35% of immigrants between the 1960s and the 1990s come from Asia. And then an area which we've seen increasing post-2000 is immigrants coming from what, if you're looking at this on YouTube and seeing the video, is described as other. And that would include Africa and the Middle East, which the United States has seen increasing immigration from those two uh, regions post-2000. So what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about the experiences of these new, newly dominant groups in immigration. Talk a little bit about Latinx Americans and their experiences during this time period. Talk about Asian Americans, who again are a rapidly growing sector of immigrant population, but also African Americans, because they are also included in this immigrant population. Many people coming from the Caribbean are of African 
African descent, people from Africa coming over, and they're mixing with the existing African American population. And we're going to check in with them and see how they're doing in the 1990s as well. So let's talk a little bit more about some of these rising minority groups who are becoming bigger parts of the population due to this new wave of immigration post-1960s. For Latinx folks, again, Latinx as a label is very, very broad, and it includes many, many different people with their own cultures who are loosely connected via Spanish speaking and also a heritage of colonization by Spain. Of the different groups of people that we see migrating from Latin America and the Caribbean of Latinx descent, Mexicans make up the majority of these immigrants still today. The Latinx Americans make up part of the biggest growing group of American minorities. By 2010, next folks hit 50 million in the American population, officially making them the largest minority group. Between 1990 and 2010, about 30 million Latinx or Hispanic folks, the terms are slightly different, but they tend to be used interchangeably, are added to the U.S. population, both through natural birth and also through immigration. And in fact, in many places in the United States, Latinx folks are projected to take over and become the majority, not the minority, within the next two decades, especially places like Texas and California. Motivations for immigration by this group is mostly driven by economic, search for better life and a better job, although we do tend to see a lot of these folks, Latinx immigrants, concentrated in low-wage jobs, partly driven to the fact that the Hart Seller Act, which is passed in 1965 to reform immigration, puts quotas on immigrants coming from the Americas for the first time. So this does mean that we have an increasing population of Latinx immigrants who are coming over illegally because they can't get in the legal way due to this very strict system of quotas. And unfortunately for them, that oftentimes means working in jobs that are lower paying. Like most immigrant groups, there's a lot of diversity within Latinx immigrants. However, on average, when you look at all Latinx immigrants together, they're communities tend to be poorer than others. And poverty, the poverty rate for Latinx immigrants is double the national figure as of the year 2010 at 30%. And until recently, Latinx folks in the United States were also lagging significantly behind on educational attainment and living and working conditions. But that seems to be improving in the past decade. So we're hopeful that that seems to be balancing and evening out. So the future for Latinx folks in the United States seems to be pretty bright. The most recent election cycle in the negative words hurled at Latinx folks for the past couple of years, notwithstanding. For Asian Americans, Asian Americans undergo quite a big shift in perception during this time period. Because when we first started the semester. So we started the semester in 1877. When we talked about Asian immigrants, we talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 that completely banned immigration from China. We talked about the Japanese also being excluded. We talked about Filipinos being greatly restricted. And part of the reason why was they were seen as not able to ever fully assimilate or become truly American, that they were just too different. However, once we get to this time period, Asian Americans suddenly experience this change post-World War II in which they are seen as more desirable than other groups of immigrants, say, compared to Latinx folks. And they become kind of nicknamed the model minority. And part of this comes from the spike of immigration of higher-skilled folks coming over 
during this new wave of immigration from Asia, and also this cultural emphasis in a lot of Asian immigrant communities on attaining higher levels of education and career success. So unfortunately, this creates some stereotypes that really aren't true. For example, not all Asians are good at math, okay, as many of my friends lament. Now, motivations for immigration are twofold within Asian American communities. You have the traditional motivation of economic opportunities or jobs, but you also have a significant sector of the Asian immigrant population fleeing totalitarian regimes. And so there's a refugee component to this as well. And so what this means is the Asian immigrant community in the 90s has a very wide gulf in between these economic seekers and these political refugees. Some Asian American or Asian immigrant groups have disproportionate numbers of highly skilled professionals, like those from India. But when you look at other immigrant groups, like for example, people from Vietnam or Cambodia, which were places where we had authoritarian regime, and in the case of Cambodia, genocide, they're primarily fleeing political violence, and so they may come with less skills to the United States. So because of that, when you average out the median income of Asian Americans in the year 2007, it's higher than the average or medium income of white folks, but there's a much bigger gap between high earners and low earners in the Asian immigrant community. What's also interesting about the Asian immigrant community is they are far more likely to statistically marry outside of their particular culture. In fact, in the year 2000, about 50% of Asian Americans reported marrying someone who was not Asian. The next highest group that measures outside of their cultural group is Latinx folks who have about a 30% rate of what we call outmarriage, or marrying someone in a different group than you. So for African Americans, the 1990s definitely showed that we had come a long way since the 1960s and the height of the civil rights movement. Affirmative action programs worked. They helped open a lot more professional career opportunities for African Americans and also just general workplace opportunities for African Americans. And educational attainment is also increasing. By 2007, 37% of African Americans had a college degree. They had a much more rapid rise on average in income compared to other groups that we've looked at. And we're starting to see by the time we get to the 1990s, the population of African Americans increasingly moving to suburbs, so not just staying in cities or in rural areas, but there's still very high levels of residential segregation. So in other words, they're still moving to places where we have, where they're settling amongst other African Americans. They're not really mixing into more multicultural communities. And part of that is not just them, but also the people in the communities they live in. Immigration from Africa the Caribbean helps to diversify the African-American group in the United States. In fact, more people of African descent immigrate between 1970 and 2000 than have been brought over in, during the slave trade to the United States. And like other immigrant groups, the immigrants coming from the Caribbean and from Africa were a mix of professionals and also refugees fleeing violence and political persecution. For all of the good trends, that we see in the African-American communities, there are still problems that are, are facing African-Americans disproportionately compared to the general population. One of that is 
urban poverty. The unemployment rate and poverty rate among African Americans living in cities was double that of their white counterparts, and the median or average income of all African Americans remained the lowest of all of the different groups, with a huge gap between the median income for African Americans and for white folks. There's also increasing concerns over police brutality, especially in urban areas, which will result in riots in 1992 in Los Angeles through the police beating of Rodney King. We've since seen more riots centered around the issue of police brutality against people of color since then. There's also limited access that African Americans have to improving their status through the courts. Cases like Patterson versus the McLean Credit Union in 1999 actually made it more difficult for people to bring and win job discrimination suits. So it made it difficult for minorities who felt they'd been discriminated against at work to actually get successful redress through the legal system. Many schools are now self-segregated based on income levels. And that also tends to track along racial or ethnic lines. That means that this process of integrating schools, of having mixed populations within educational environments, isn't really happening anymore. And in fact, the level of integration in American public schools is now lower today than it was in the early 1970s, as courts blocked attempts to try to circumvent the residential segregation issue and try to find other ways creatively to integrate schools. One of the biggest problems that disproportionately affects people of color and especially African Americans is mass incarceration. Throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, conservative politicians campaigned on this idea of being tough on crime, particularly wanting to address a growing rate of violent crime and drug offenses in urban areas in the 70s and the 80s. That mentality, though, focus particularly on arresting, prosecuting, and tossing into prison this population. So the idea became lock them all up, toss them away from mainstream society, not so much focus on rehabilitation, making them, you know, better people, making them pay their debt to society, and then reintegrating them into society after they have served their time. And the bulk of growth in the prison population is for people who were convicted of nonviolent drug offenses. When we look at the war on drugs, crack cocaine, which was more popular drug of choice among poor and more urban and populations of color, was prosecuted at a much higher rate than powdered cocaine, which is a little bit more expensive, more bougie, more popular amongst white people and suburban or upper class folks. And so what happens is there's, there's this very lopsided arrest and conviction rate based on race. And by 2008, 2.3 million people were in prison in the United States, one of the highest rates of incarceration worldwide, and 10 times the number of people in prison compared to 1970. The other thing that's concerning is not just the growth of people in prison, but the makeup of people in prison. By 2010, 70% of the prison population was non-white. And that's a complete flip when you look at the prison population in the 1950s. So this means that minorities 
are the majority in the prison system, that they're being imprisoned at a far higher rate given their numbers in the general population than white people. Part of this is due to this tough on crime attitude. Part of this is due to prisons becoming big business. A lot of small towns see prison building as an economic booster and state governments increasingly try to cut costs by contracting private companies to run prison services. This is portrayed very vividly in series like Orange is the New Black on Netflix, which covers uh, prison population for women. But we also start to see with this rise in the prison population bringing back convict labor. Although now convicts are not being leased out to build railroads or mining or agriculture as they had been during the late 1800s, but now increasingly doing more skilled jobs. So for example, in the COVID-19 pandemic, we have prisoners making masks. And we also see an- another trend in the prison population, the death penalty be using used for more cases. And again, disproportionately, the death penalty is applied more often if someone is a minority than they are white. And this is a continuing problem, again, not just for African Americans, but for all Americans of color. We look at the prison rates, and again, it's disproportionately high for Latinx folks, for Asian folks, in comparison to the general white population. And this is definitely something that a lot of American reformers and activists are concerned about and looking at, is how do we treat people in prison more ethically? How do we return to this vision of the prison as a place of rehabilitation, which ironically is how prisons got started was as a way to more humanely deal with people who had broken the law and tried to fix them and make them productive members of society again. How do we return to that mission? And how do we solve this problem of people of color getting harsher sentences and being arrested and convicted at higher rates than white counterparts who are also initially arrested for the same crimes? So this is something that we're going to continue to grapple with even still today. This is not something that has been solved, but this is just kind of an idea this overview to get you up to speed on what's happening with these rising minorities that are bigger in numbers by the time we get to the 1990s. When we come back next session, we'll talk about a few more groups that are seeing some changes. We'll talk about culture wars and we will talk about some scandal and impeachment as well as the election of 2000. So we'll come back to all of that fun stuff next time. Until next time, I'm Dr. S. Mocker.